This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Transforming Culture, the podcast presented by Muskoka Bible Center. My name is Luke LaRock, and I'm the director of ministry here at MBC, where our mission is to create resilient, biblically-rooted families to the glory of God. We have been incredibly blessed over the last number of years to see huge growth in the number of people who are attending MBC in person at our conference center in Muskoka, Ontario. We're thrilled at that growth, but it's also made us aware that we have such an opportunity to share the teaching from our facility with people beyond those who can be here in the summer months and and those who can attend our year-round retreats. And so whether that's our new Resilient Magazine, which we launched last spring, or this new podcast, we are excited to share the opportunity to learn with you. This podcast, Transforming Culture, was born out of a desire to help equip and prepare the church to engage with the world around us. When I started at NBC a number of months ago, I was challenged to think about how the world is often transforming the church. I think the quote from one of our board members was that the world is often 10 years ahead of the church and that things are happening for which the church just isn't ready to give a biblical Christ-centered answer. Instead of culture transforming the church, here at NBC, we're interested in seeing the church transform culture. But the question is, how do we do that? And I think that we need to start having some hard conversations about hard questions in order to equip ourselves to be ready to give a defense of our faith. And so in the summer of 2022, we invited our summer Bible teachers to share their thoughts with the chapel audience about some controversial cultural issue that needed discussion whether it was political engagement, abortion, loving our LGBTQ neighbors, wokeness, deconstruction, many more. They brought so much engaging, thoughtful teaching each Monday night, and we're excited to share that with you now as a limited podcast series over the months of October and November. Here's how the podcast will work. Over the summer, we recorded the chapel sessions as presented by our speakers, Then I had the chance to sit down with each of the speakers to dig into some of the things that they talked about and and to hear more about what they think. As a throwback to the summer, our episodes will launch each Monday, just like they did in the summer on Monday nights in the chapel. We know that not everyone is going to agree with everything that's said during these episodes, and that's okay. Our heart for this podcast is that we want to present biblically accurate and truthful information and then allow you to wrestle with these issues as you grow and learn to be more like Christ. Whenever they recommend it, we will do our best to share resources with you like books and articles that the teachers think will help you grow. One last thing. I love podcasts. They got me through many commutes while I was living in Toronto, taking the subway to and from work and school. I could listen to a podcast all day, every day. My commute right now is still about 35 minutes and I still like to listen to podcasts. 
So I was pretty pumped when we made the decision to launch some podcasts here at NBC. But we have some learning to do. You'll hear little glitches here and there in the live recordings, like today, when you might be able to hear my voice in the background a little bit because I forgot to turn off my mic while Dwayne was speaking. We're learning, and I'm glad you're along for the ride. Thanks for your patience and your grace. I won't mention it again because I'm already good at rambling and you're not listening to this podcast to hear the sound of my voice. I'm thrilled to present to you our first Transforming Culture podcast episode to you today. It's taught by Dwayne Klein about political engagement in a modern world. Dwayne has been the lead pastor of James North Baptist Church in Hamilton, Ontario since January 1995. He was raised in a rural Ontario setting where God saved him at a young age. After graduating from Tyndale College, God called him to be a pastor in the heart of Hamilton. James North offers a variety of ministries in the neighborhood, which cares for over 450 unchurched individuals and families every single week. In the fall of 2020, they opened their new worship and ministry facility, which includes 45 supportive and affordable apartments for those struggling with homelessness. Dwayne married Amy in 1998, and they are blessed with four amazing children. They are also business owners of a storefront that Amy runs in Hamilton, and Dwayne speaks in a variety of forums across the country. That's it for now. I'm going to, like I said, get out of the way, and I truly hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dwayne Klein about political engagement in a modern world. When they asked about these talks, I said I'd be happy to uh, discuss the issue of political correctness and engagement, kind of wrapping both up into one, partly because I love political engagement and partly because this is a talk I've given a few places around political correctness, McMaster University, um, some talk with other believers, TGC stuff where people have asked me to uh, talk through some of these issues. So I want to start with scripture. Um, the first is may help you think through some political engagement issues. Jeremiah 38 I preached this passage with Promise Keepers around the whole country just pre-COVID. Um, Shephatai, son of Matan, Gedidal, son of Pashur, Jakul, son of Shemani, and Pashur, son of Malkajah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says, whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. This is what the Lord says. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. When the officials said to the king, the officials then said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah, put him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank deep into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that he had been put, that, sorry, they had put Jeremiah in the cistern, while the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went to the palace and said to him, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no water, when there is no water or any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take 30 men from here with you. Lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the room under the treasury in the palace. 
He took out some old rags and worn out clothes. And there he let them down with the ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. They pulled him out with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Yeah, so it's called the transformation. This is a fascinating passage in scripture where Jeremiah is basically sentenced to death. He's going to die in the bottom of the cistern. He sinks likely up to his waist. It says he sinks deep into the cistern. And he's just simply left there to die. And the king says, fascinatingly, that he can do nothing to oppose them, which is really difficult to think through because he's the king. If anyone can do something to oppose these men, he could. But he chooses to abdicate his responsibility as the Babylonians have surrounded Jerusalem. They're about to take it by siege. They're going to starve them to death. That's why they say when there's no bread or water left in the city, um, Jeremiah will just die. And Ebed-Melech shows up. Now, we don't even know if that's his name. They capitalize it in the Bible, but it just means slave of the king. He's a Cushite. He's a foreigner. So he's a foreigner in Jerusalem who has no name. Every time he would hear his name, he would hear slave of the king. Slave of the king. Slave of the king. He goes to the king to oppose what the king has just done. We can't fix it tonight. He's in the king's presence. He says what they've done is wrong. And he wants to rescue Jeremiah. Now, that's a courageous thing to do because in that moment, the king could just have him killed. But the king doesn't do that. The king says, go and rescue Jeremiah. And then Ebed-Melech does something incredibly um, insightful. He goes to the king's treasury. He grabs a whole bunch of rags. And he goes to the cistern. Jeremiah is older now, likely in his 70s. And he drops the rags down and he's like, Jeremiah, use these rags to pad yourself because we're going to drop some ropes down and we're going to pull you out. But you're so deep in the mud that if we pull you out too hard, you're going to get rope burn. And we don't want to leave you scarred from this rescue. So pad yourself well and we'll pull you out. And they do with ropes and rags. So often when we engage in political correctness, engage in politics, we show up either with ropes or rags, not with both. We either show up with ropes and all we have with us is compassion and absolutely nothing to really offer any assistance with. I mean, had Ebed Melech said, hey, Jeremiah, here's some rags. Clean yourself up. Sorry, you're going to starve to death. Not very nice in that cistern. Have a good life. That wouldn't have been very helpful. And had he just thrown the ropes down and gotten him out of the cistern but scarred him for life, that would have been something that was challenging either, too, or as well. But he does both. He offers both ropes and rags. And I think it shows us the balance between here, why the word of God is so helpful, thinking through both grace and truth. So when I arrived in the north end of Hamilton 27 and a half years ago, when I was 23 years old, starting to pastor, I said to myself, how do we collaborate with others around us who may not be Christian that we can engage with? So as we started to serve and walk alongside of those in our neighborhood, I got invited to sit on different committees. So I'm 25 years old. It was before Amy and I got married. 
And this health center that's downtown invited me to sit on their board. I get on their board, not understanding at all what it is. I'm 25 years old and everyone else on the board is 40 and up. And it's like intimidating. And everyone else has a doctorate or multiple doctorates or they're a lawyer or they're an accountant because they're on the board for a certain reason. And at the time, our church was very poor. I think I was making $18,000 when we got married. The average pastor in Australia was in somewhere like 35, 36,000. I think I was making 18 when we got married. And so I was making less than that that year. And, and the average person on that board was making over 150,000. So I was like, I just felt totally out of my league. Like, what am I doing on this board? I don't understand this. But I learned I loved board governance. I love strategic planning. And so as other people from our church continued to serve in the capacities God had granted them around, um, you know, uh, sweeping of floors, making of toast, helping with uh, tutoring, I got involved with boards. And I got to chair that board twice, once through its build and the other through a CEO transition who'd been with the organization for 21, uh, 29 years. I transitioned her out, transitioned the new CEO. And in fact, the board asked if I would stay on the board for a third year as chair. Normally it's a two-year term as chair. This is just like three years ago so that I could help transition the new CEO in because um, I, had, I, had, I, I worked with an organization that helps to, uh, does a big search firm for CEOs. And it's another world for me. Like I remember one of my board members, uh, my vice chair said, how will we ever find a board member, like a, like a CEO for what we're paying? Because we can only afford to pay like a couple hundred thousand for this position. I'm like, wow, how will we ever afford to do that? And she's like, because she starts people in her company at 250,000 under her at, at her position. Now, all of you want to know where she works. And, um, and, so, and so as I got involved in this level, I realized that there could be a real engagement. So out of that, God opened some doors that were very interesting, right? Years ago, I was invited by um, the Minister of Health in Ontario and, and these organizations of health centers to be at one of these health meetings. I got to speak in a room with about 800 people. And as I got to speak in the room with 800 people, it was on the determinants of health and one of the determinants of health being spirituality. And so in the talk, I was very clear about what my spirituality was, what it means that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and what that looks like as part of that engagement that was there. Now that of course was met with a great deal of both hesitation and applause, if that makes sense. Like it was a, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, just before COVID, our city held a meeting because we've been involved in housing and I sat on the housing committee for our city for a number of years. And, and when you're sitting on the committee, you're always recommending other people to speak and other people to do stuff. And so our city decided that they wanted to run a colloquium on housing and the housing crisis in Hamilton. And they decided that they wanted to invite all the MPs, all the MPPs, all the city councilors of our area to be a part of this. They wanted to invite a prof from Mac to come and talk about it. And then they wanted to run an hour-long panel with kind of three housing experts in our city. And they said, Dwayne, would you lead the panel? I was like, sure. And I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, you decide. You make up the questions. You decide what to do. You lead the panel. Because God can open doors like that, where you have the opportunity to offer that kind of influence. Now, at times, it's challenging. At times, it offers a great deal of challenge. I want to talk about a few of those as you navigate that. We live in a world where all the time I hear white privilege, right? Now, white privilege is real. It's not something that's not real. When you're in our culture, 
there is privilege from having grown up, lived, and been established in this culture. Now, we need to be very careful because I talk to people from other cultures, like my Asian friends at our church would say, if, if you go to where they are from in Asia, it's not white privilege, it's Asian privilege. And if you're from another country coming there, you experience the opposite of what they might experience here. Think of as you walk through this and all this political correctness and what it looks like, um, a number of things that are, that are struggling between the left and the right, right? People now talk all the time about triggers. And so as you navigate these waters, people will talk about language that we use. They'll talk about triggers that are out there. This is all part of the political correctness thing. So we need to be mindful of language that we use, but also people at times overreact. So let me give an example of this, right? A guy was taking a course at McMaster University on World War II, asked to be excused from his uh, final exam uh, and his final paper because learning about the war triggered for him uh, just a great deal of trauma. And yet, it was a course on World War II. The university excused him, but the professor was actually quite concerned about it because he was like, he's chosen to take a course on World War II. We're now in this course on World War II. He's claiming trauma. Does verbiage really, non-abusive verbiage, really cause trauma? You want to read a great book on that? You should read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Don't remember the second author. Not a Christian. He's on the left, but he writes about the extreme left. It's a brilliantly written book. Stephen Fry, who's not a believer, in the monk debates. So this is a book called Political Correctness. It's the monk debates. The monks support it. Um, Jordan Peterson, Stephen Fry, Michelle Goldberg, and uh, Michael Dyson, are, are, they engage in a dialogue. Some of you may have watched this. He says this. He says, it's a strange paradox that the liberals are illiberal in their demand for liberality. They are exclusive in their demand for inclusivity. They are homogeneous in their demand for heterogeneity. They are somehow undivisive in their call for diverse, undiverse, sorry, in their call for diversity. You can be diverse, but not diverse in your opinions or your language or your behavior. And he said, it's a terrible pity. So as we navigate these days, we navigate days that can be very challenging. In fact, in it, you find as you talk to people, all of a sudden you'll meet someone and they catastrophize. Now, what is that? That happens when they say, oh, if I fail this, this, this assignment, I'm going to fail this course. If I fail this course, I'm going to fail high school. If I fail high school, I'm never going to get a job. If I'm never going to get a job, I'm going to be homeless. If I'm homeless, I'm going to live on the street. If I'm on the street, I'm going to die young. If I die young, that all starts from I'm going to fail this assignment, right? For a grade 12 student and moves to I'm homeless in seconds. Some of you have experienced with some of your teenagers or your grandkids, and they, and they shift in this direction very quickly. And when I work on these boards, um, especially in the realm of healthcare, people are incredibly sensitive in all of these areas. And so then you have to ask yourself how you speak the gospel into them. What does that look like? Well, there are some things that are just very true about the gospel. The least racist people on the planet should be Christians. Nothing racist 
should ever leave a Christian's mouth. God is the most diverse being in this universe. He is saving people from every language, custom, color, and tribe. He created humanity. Is that not true? In all of its diversity, God did it. God chose to create all of the people on this planet. They are all equally image bearers of his, with no race or culture superior to another. None. And so when we act in racist ways, we're acting as if somehow we are superior to others. Christians should be the greatest example of inclusivity when it comes to race of any person on this planet. People should see the way we love people, the way we act towards people, the way we care towards people. People should see that just flowing from us. So we've had to navigate some interesting waters, right? I said, I said uh, last night when I was talking about this, when we applied to use the Board of Education building, the school on Sunday mornings, I wrote to the Director of Education, this is now 2010, and said, dear so-and-so, I said, uh, here's our permit. We were willing to pay full price. And, and I wrote on this, I'll never forget this, I wrote um, worship service. And I didn't know if they knew what that meant because they were letting us use the gym and the other part of the school on the weeknights for free for outreach, even though we would do like a 10 to 15 minute devotional because all the kids that came in were, um, were kids that were mainly from the neighborhood. They were fine that we got it for free. So I wrote worship service, singing to God, praying to God, hearing from the Bible, dash God's word, explaining the Bible so people can understand it. Like I just wrote out what a worship service is. And um, I got the bill, and at the bottom it said, total amount due equals, I think it was 38000 Please pay zero. And I called them right away, and, and he was like, hey, Dwayne, did you like your bill? I'm like, it was a surprise. I said, we're willing to pay for the school because we don't want anyone to ever walk in and be surprised that you've given us this kind of a deal. And uh, I said, I tried to be really clear what we were using for, that it was for church. And he said, well, he said, Dwayne, I'm not a believer, but he said, I'm also not an idiot. You didn't need to explain it quite like that. Like, <laughs> um, he said, I have two doctorates. I know what church is. And then he said this. We, we at that time had won the partnership um, of the year from the Board of Education twice as their partner of the year. And he said, he said, Dwayne, we've never had as a board a partner as good as your church. For you, the school is free. And through three directors of education, because they turn over, we got that gym for free for 10 years. When McMaster University called us and told us that they had awarded us as a charity of the year from all of the uh, physicians in the city that have teaching faculty appointment, I told you, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was my friends emailing me a joke. And when I called them and then they said, I could have 10 minutes from the front to address the room. I said, on what? And they said, anything you want. What do you do in that moment? Well, I thank the physicians for being physicians in our city because I'm thankful for them. I thank them for their work. I thank them for the way that they, that they contribute to the healthcare system of our society and the health of our citizens of Hamilton. And I talked about for the next eight minutes or so how all knowledge we have is God's knowledge given to us. That everything we have is from God to us and what that looks like in engaging conversation. A number of people came and talked to me after. In fact, Dr. Martha Fulford, who was a doctor in infectious disease who helped our twins when they were born 
and had all kinds of problems with Barnes. She was there. She received an award that night. She, she knew who I was right away. I went off to introduce myself. She goes, I'll never forget you, Dwayne. She said, your twins were so complicated when they were born. I've never had a case quite like that um, as Jewel and Ivy. And she said, I'll just never forget walking with you guys through all of that. And uh, we engaged in this conversation. Then two of the physicians after engaged with us, one of them who is taking physician care to the street, not a believer. And we created this alignment of working together and have had incredible faith conversations. And that's the doors that God can open. But there are things that we've done, right? So recently we built this $40 million, uh, sorry, $40 million, $22 million building. The $22 million building is half 11 million housing, half 11 million church. God's provided 21 million for it. So the money owed is money on housing. And we make a dollar a year off the rent of all the tenants. So there's, there's, uh, 45 apartments in the building, 49 people living in it, and we make a dollar a year off of that. And so the government gave us 6.3 million to start, then a bit more, so we got to kind of like 8.3 million. And, um, and at that point in time, uh, we had to figure out what to do with that. What does it look like that you sign a 20-year agreement with the municipal, provincial, and federal government for housing? So we engaged lawyers. They combed over the documents. They went through everything with us to make sure that these documents in no way would hinder the faith of what we believed. And in every way, were just simply some type of loan or mortgage that was forgivable if we used it for supportive and affordable housing for 20 years. We did that because we shouldn't be the ones reading the documents. We need to hire experts to do that. Our lawyers went through it, offered some feedback, the government accepted it, and we signed the package. Um, you could figure out what you want to do with that, right? But we still put, they gave us a little bit more money in the end because they did a, a study, a feasibility study on us being able to carry the mortgage. And this was a great moment for me. I love our government sometimes. And I said, are you going to do this based on our budget? They said, no, we need to do it based on the income you make from the apartments. I said, well, that's a dollar a year. And they said, that doesn't sound very feasible right? To have this mortgage on a dollar a year. We said, no, it doesn't, does it? And so then they, um, they gave us a bit more money to help us. We ended up with 8.7 million in the end. But we put $2.3 million of our dollars and dollars of other donors that walked alongside of us into the housing portion of the building. So what did this look like? At our, at our groundbreaking, the city said we had more government officials at our groundbreaking than they'd ever seen for any other building they've ever opened. Lots of people were at our groundbreaking from all levels of government. And I got to lead it. So how do you lead it as a Christian pastor at a groundbreaking? Well, you open in prayer. You read a passage of scripture. You explain the passage of scripture. Now, not long, like 10 or 12 minutes, right? I may have lost track of time somewhere in there, but that, that was about what I did. And, and then, you know, you open it up. Everybody who's there, once, once you're through that, there's an order. There's a pecking order. It's, a, it's fascinating, right? Because if someone's there from the province or from the feds, they take priority. And then the province, they take priority. If they're a minister uh, of some sort, they take your priority. If, if they're, you know, so, you know, so none of the councillors got to speak because the mayor was there. Uh, none of the, you know, your MP could speak, but if a minister from that uh, party was there, they could speak. If your MP wasn't, in the party that was in power, the person for the party in power got to speak. So we then went through all of that. And then we're touring uh, kind of the old building, talking about the plans for the new building. 
And as we're doing so, two of the people that are there from the federal government said to me, one guy said, you know, I used to go to church. Like, like talk to me about it. He said, I, I went all the time. And then the, one of the MPs who was there, lady said, I, I used to go too. And so now we've engaged in this conversation about 40 minutes of what this looked like. Um, at the next one we had where they announced some more money that we got, this was just a fascinating moment for me. Again, same kind of scenario. I prayed, read some scripture, and then one of the MPs got up and said this. We just will never forget this. Those of us that were staff there, about 150 people at the meeting. Um, this person who's not a believer said, you know what? I've never said this before, but I see God all over this project. Sat down, next person got up. You know, I see God all over this project too. It then became the running theme of every speaker, right? The mayor got up, I see God all over. The I'm like, wow, they're seeing God in places that I don't think they've ever seen God in before. And so we want to engage the politicians around us as best we can for the gospel. Knowing that as we do so and wade through these waters, that you're weighing through something that can be incredibly di di uh, divisive at times, and at times is wrought with politically correct landmines, if that makes sense. And yet we're not in any way going to compromise in the gospel. So in the middle of all this, we wrote our new bylaws. We just decided this is what we need to do in this moment. So we wrote our new bylaws. Our bylaws include a definition of maleness and a definition of femaleness. What does it mean that you're male? What does it mean that you're female? It includes a definition of marriage. It includes within it our church discipline policy. And they had to sign off on our documents to give us money for housing. Yeah. Our lawyer said, be prepared to get these back. And we didn't. They signed off on them. And then uh, we, we had to go through. This is, these are great moments in life. The government, after giving us the first point six three six point three million, another department of the government emailed us and said, you're not qualified to receipt for housing because your charitable status is under advancement of religion. And I called them and said, do you know you have just given us 6.3 million? They said, no, we didn't know that. I said, so someone else in the government thinks we're qualified to be able to receipt for housing. Huh, they said, we should talk to each other. Listen, I'm not, that was their words, not mine. Um, and so we then applied to have charitable status both for advancement of religion and for relief of poverty. And the lawyers said, be prepared, they're gonna fight it. And they didn't, it just got accepted. I think our churches need to be wise. ARPA is an organization that we have become familiar with recently that we've really appreciated. We had Andre Schutten, a lawyer with ARPA, come to our uh, staff recently and he met with our staff meeting at lunch for staff. Then uh, after meeting with our staff, uh, he met with all of our board and finance committee for dinner. And we had him go through all of our documents, um, like our legal documents, our bylaws, our statement of activities, um, our, uh, our membership covenant, and offer comments. What should we change about these things? So that as we engage at this type of level, we ensure the greatest amount of, of protection for a church that wants to be engaged as we can. And he offered comments to us, and it was really incredibly helpful. We're changing some of our documents based on those comments. But he also said this. He said, he said, 
the way you've written your comments has, led you, has left you in a good position uh, for what you're doing. But here's how it started. And I think this is just important to remember, and I'll stop with this in a couple of minutes. We swept floors and we made toast and we taught kids math and reading. That's it. We said to them, how can we serve? Because this is not what Christians should do. We just went in and said, how can we help? What can we do? How can we serve? I've seen this in a number of other places. I was recently speaking at Calvary Baptist in Oshawa. Some of you know Rick Baker. He's been here a number of times. At his church, they run an outreach on Father's Day. They had 420 uh, classic cars come in on Father's Day. I was a speaker for their outreach. I spoke both at the breakfast where they have all the people with cars come into a breakfast. And so I spoke at the breakfast. Um, and then you're supposed to be interesting enough at the breakfast and hopefully some of them come back for the service. I'm like, thank you, Rick, no pressure. And, um, and so I spoke at the breakfast and, um, and then I spoke again at the service. But at the breakfast, he invites a number of dignitaries from Oshawa to come. And the mayor came. And the mayor sits at us with us for breakfast. And we have this incredible conversation. And that mayor has come to faith in Christ um, in later years. And so just an incredible conversation about what his faith looks like and how we engage at that level and, and how, we, um, how we can just in, in incredible ways um, be Christians in this type of environment. And I'll close with this. So being in the healthcare system, of course, one of the questions you get asked about as I engage in this is on my views on pro-life. And so then in the middle of that, you've got to be able to think through how you answer that. Theologically, I have lots of answers to that, right? I I think there's there's two main reasons, um, maybe three, why we're pro-life as Christians. The, The one is this, of course, God is the author of life. The second is that life begins at conception. I believe the greatest theological argument for that is this. Jesus didn't come down as a one-year-old or a five-year-old. For Jesus to be truly human and cloak his deity with humanity, he was placed into a woman's womb, which makes a massive statement that life begins when? At conception. I think third, God's really clear that that murder, which was abortion is, is something that's outside of anything he ever wants. Now, Medically, how do you engage in that? Well, in these conversations, I'll say to people around the table, because they don't care about the theology of it, I'll say, is the piece of DNA inside of the mom, is the fetus a separate piece of DNA from her or the same? And they'll say, well, it's a, it's this, it's a different piece of DNA. No one, no one on, I don't know anyone on the planet that would say it's the same piece of DNA. And I'll say, does that make that piece of DNA a separate human being or the same as the mom? And they'll all say that makes that fetus, a separate piece of DNA, they'll often say when it's born, a a different human, a different person. And I'll say, well, do you know of any other situation on the planet where you have two pieces of DNA where we defer to the one with the most power and the most rights over and against the one with the least power and the least rights? No one can name a situation on the planet where we do that. No one, anywhere. Because we don't. We always defer to the one with the least rights the least voice, and the least choice. But then the argument will be that, well, a woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her body. And I'll say, is is that true? 
if a woman today, I'll say this to the board, you know, something, if this is like a lunchtime conversation, light lunch conversation, um, I'll say, I'll say, you know, with a, with, if a woman went into the hospital today and said, I don't like my right arm, take it off, would they do it? No. I don't like my left eye, take it out, would you do it? Like, would any physician do it? No. Why? Because you don't have the right to do whatever you want with your body. It's, it's a false argument. It, it doesn't stand up in any way. Now, there's a flip side to this, and I close with this as you engage in this conversation. If we were willing to step up and foster and adopt and care and walk alongside of women who were in pregnancies that they weren't expecting and care for moms and kids in ways that the world could just look at and say, we can't even explain that, we would have a greater voice. Because the voice comes from serving in a way that people can't explain who you are or what you're doing, except that something about you is radically different and allows us the opportunity to say that difference is Jesus Christ. Let me pray. You are God, and we thank you that you are God and that you are good. And we live in a day where we are surrounded by all kinds of political minefields, landmines. They're challenging. And God, navigating these waters and these days can be incredibly difficult. We ask for your grace. We pray, God, for your wisdom. And God, may you grant us hearts that serve so that the world can see who you are in us. In your transforming power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you, Dwayne, for that amazing talk. I know even as I was listening that it was hard to hear because there were so many more questions that I have for you now that I've heard it multiple times, but I've already done the Q&A. We recorded it a number of weeks ago. Dwayne is an incredible speaker, but he's also a gracious and loving interviewee because he takes each question that I asked and just really goes at the heart of what it's all about. And so I hope you enjoy this short Q&A about political engagement with Dwayne Klein. One of the things that I listened to you talk about today was power. And that's something when it comes to political engagement, I have a lot of questions about because power often makes decisions. And what I heard from people was how do we respond to power when power doesn't agree with what the Bible says? Right. Luke, it's been great to be here and thank you for that question. And so there are some things we need to consider in scripture, like Timothy talks to us, Paul talks to us in Timothy about praying for those in power, praying for those in authority. And in Romans talks about how we're subject to them. So those are some things that we need to take into account as we consider power. But when power is doing something that is corrupt or that is not uh, just, that's injustice, we also need to go to some of the prophetic material in scripture, Isaiah 1, that talks about standing up against injustice and what that looks like, which takes a great deal of courage, but we need to do so in a loving way. Um, I've seen some Christians, and I have been, uh, I have done this previously, where when I stand up against corrupt power, I do so with anger and and I can almost be vindictive, I can be upset, and and it doesn't gain any hearing. And so to think through how we do this in a way that honors um, when in first in first Timothy, when Paul is saying that we can live at peace with everyone, how do we do this in a way that we can bring about peaceful resolution? How can we speak into um, areas of injustice? In Isaiah 58, it talks about how we're not only to loose the chains of injustice in our way we live, but we're to break them so they can never be used for injustice again. So sometimes I think people do it unintentionally. 
They don't recognize that with the power they have, that they're actually creating enslavement. And so we can point it out to them. And at times there can be corrective measures made. Um, at times it's not a company or a person, it's actually systemic within a system. Pointing that out to a system is much more complicated. I think it can start with speaking to your MP or your MPP. It can start by addressing areas where it is that case. There are some areas where we might find there's winnable battles because the culture is aligned with us and says, wow, we didn't know how injustice was. There's other areas, example, we talked tonight about sanctity of life issues, where the culture is vehemently in disagreement with us and it's gonna take an act of God to move us forward in those areas. But I think recognizing where there are imbalances of power, where power is being used inappropriately or where it's used corruptly will determine kind of our course of action. I love when you talk about anger there, because for me, and I see this almost you know, to play the advocate on the other side as someone with a question. There are times in the Bible when Jesus flips tables and there are times when Jesus seemingly goes passively to the cross. And in both those situations, I think that people can find confusion because they, they see that Jesus can be righteously angry and we can get alongside on that on some issues. We can be righteously angry about some things. But then also Jesus does things quietly where he doesn't protest his arrest. He tells Peter to put his sword away. As a Christian, how am I supposed to figure out when it comes to governing authorities, when I'm supposed to be angry and when I'm supposed to be uh, maybe not complicit, but um, compassionate and, and passive and go along with the flow because that might be God's plan. I, I think as a believer, I feel that sometimes because there are things I feel very much are unjust in the world, but I don't see other believers rising up on it. And sometimes I see things in the world where people are rising up and I don't as a believer understand it either. How am I supposed to tell the difference between the two? Right. And I'll go further in the same chapter in Acts. In one situation, Paul escapes being stoned. And later in the chapter, he is stoned. Um, all, all in the same thing. So in one case, he's able to escape it, flees from it. And in another case, he ends up being stoned. Right. And so and so I think when, when it comes to these areas um, and we think through, you know, Christ turning the tables, Christ possibly going to the cross. When it comes to issues of justice, it's interesting that we are commanded in Scripture when we see injustices happening to others to engage. But when it's happening to us, which is often when we get angry, mm. God actually says, justice is mine, says mm. the Lord. So when it's happening to us, we're supposed to say, I leave this in the Lord's hands because I'm not to be my own vindicator. When it's happening to others, God says, you should be called to action. In fact, just quickly, like in Isaiah 1, all of the words in Isaiah 1 around justice are action words. And so it's fascinating when you think of, of, of just kind of these issues. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So take up, plead, defend, uh, seek justice, do right. They're all action-oriented words. And so I think when we see um, injustices happening to others, God's calling us uh, as his people to actively engage in those injustices. When injustice is happening to us, God says, trust me as the one who vindicates all injustice. Even, even the action we take can take different forms. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, talking to your MP, uh, but I know recently, and I know we're, we're, we are recording this right now in the middle of the summer, right? Lots of things have been happening. It's a couple of days after Canada Day. We had trucker protests in Ottawa a few months ago. We had a, a smaller protest a few days ago. 
one of them writing to my MP and showing up on Parliament Hill to protest. Those are two actions, which I, I, I don't want to comment either way because I don't want to prejudge anything. But I do think it's interesting because both of those are actions that can take different forms. And, and one of them feels more immediate and rewarding to show up at a protest. And one of them feels more like maybe a long play. And it makes me think of William Wilberforce fighting for the end of slavery, right. where they knew that was a long process. Right. And so they played the long game. What is it like for Christians to play the long game for something like we mentioned right to life when it feels so immediate and painful now? How can you or I or any Christian encourage another believer to take heart and to have hope in the face of the long game? Because it does feel like the long game half the time. Yeah, it, it does feel like the long game. And I'd say the first thing we need to do is we need to pray through these issues, mm -hmm. right? We need to say, God, I need your strength. I need you to walk with me. I can't do this without you. I think then we need to ask God for his wisdom in that. Like, God, what is the best approach? Are there people that we can find in parliament um, other parts of our government that are aligned with us? Um, are there people that we know um, who specialize in this area that can talk to us about best practices or approach? What have they found that is most effective? I find that those types of things are helpful um, in moving forward. And where one thing, you mentioned the, 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 the truckers protest worked effectively during a time of COVID, that same type of thing may not work effectively next time mm. or for the next thing. And so I think mm. we need to be asking ourselves what will work effectively. And I think in that we as Christians need to be asking ourselves, how do we do this well? Because what we should be most riled up about is God's glory. Mm. And so often we get, I know lots of Christians who got quite concerned when it comes to justice about their rights. And, and God is always concerned about his glory. Mm. Um, and so when I talk about this, interesting, whenever you watch, look at the action words in scriptures about injustice, it's always about the injustice of others and you actioning to free them for whatever enslavement they're in. Mm. Uh, but sometimes it is the long haul because if the long haul creates change, um, long lasting change, that is better than immediate change typically. Mm. This evening you were talking about uh, the, the work that you did at the beginning, sweeping floors, I think making grilled cheese sandwiches, something else. I, I don't remember all of them right now. I've seen that work so well, the effective hands and feet of Christ doing the simple, easy, humble tasks. And we're in a culture these days that looks so much for the quick fix Instagram snippet, right? We see these, uh, celebrity pastors who maybe they preach a 40 minute sermon, but it's the one zinger line that gets pulled out of it and posted right. to kind of draw fame. And, I don't want to necessarily slam that because I think there is some good in, in people being reached in that way. Um, there are different people for different, pa different pastors for different people. What did you find so effective of doing the humble, quiet work at the beginning of your ministry, which as you talked about tonight has now led to millions of dollars in funding to help the least of these and marginalized communities that might not otherwise have gotten the help. Was that an intentional process for you or was that something that, you know, we started with what we knew and then it built from there. I th it was intentional, but it was also what we had. Hmm. Right. And I, I think, I think as God grants open doors to you and you recognize skill sets that he's granted you, your congregation people. So tonight I met people in the Q and a who are part of public health, who are one of the, one of them, their, their sons of mayor in one of our cities in Ontario, people who have other opportunities for influence. And so I think, 
wherever we are, we need to serve well. And we need to allow people to see that that in in this sense, nothing is beneath us, hmm. regardless of what we're doing in terms of service. That that just as Christ emptied himself and came to the cross, that we are willing to take our cross daily to follow him. And so I think that means an attitude of service. And I think when the world sees people that are truly genuinely coming, not for their interest, the interests of the people that are coming to serve, but for the interests of the people who are being served, how do we help them? How do we best walk alongside of them? All of a sudden our posture shows that we're not in it for us, we're in it for others. And, um, and in the Christian's mind, of course, firstly, for the glory of God, mm. like we're in this for the kingdom. Yeah. And we want people to be able to come to faith in Christ. And just as Christ came to serve and not be served, we're coming to serve and not be served. And I think it can start in our, in our thing, probably in my youthfulness, it started because we thought these are the skills we have. Yeah. We can sweep floors, we can mop up, we can make toast, we can do math, we can read with people. But then as some people in our community gained other skills, recently I said to a gentleman in our, in our uh, church community, I said, you're outstanding as a consultant. You do a great job um, as a board member of our church. I'd like you to consider serving on another board in our, in our committee, in our community, a non-Christian board, where I think you could have some influence. God would use you powerfully. It would be your opportunity and your way to serve. Now, we often think of how is that service when this is a prestigious board and blah, 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 but, but it still is service if you go on with the attitude saying, these are the skills and gifts that God has given me, and I can go into this and be an influence for his kingdom. And whether that's tonight, people telling me they have a son who's a mayor or someone who's higher up in public health or someone else who's engaged in the public school system and whatever board they're a part of, and they're higher up, someone who's a trustee. If we go in with an attitude of service, people see that because not all, but many people in the world, they want recognition, they want to be seen, they want to be served. They want people to know who they are and they're in it for themselves. They're in it for the next thing they can do. It's a stepping stone often for the next thing, not just for the public good. Whereas we're in it for the kingdom and God's mm. glory. You talked a lot about uh, successes that you had and, and they sound really great, you know, and, and I'm having followed James street North and all the work you do. I'm so thrilled to, to hear about it. I am sure that you've experienced disappointment and rejection too. Oh, many times when we first got into this, the, the principal, of the one school that we were connecting with said, we don't want you here. Oh. And he really blocked it. Right. Um, we became friends later on. We were able to serve, but it took, it took a couple of years of really working with him and, and getting to know him to know that he could actually trust us. The, at one time, the rec center in our community wasn't doing well. And they brought in a rec center guru to come in and to fix our rec center. And three months in, he came to meet with me and said, I want to know why he was a really gruff man. I want to know why there's more kids in this community coming to your Baptist church programs than to our community center and really upset about it. And we had to work on that and figure that out. And he was very opposed to anything we were doing. And then I got to speak at his retirement because through that God broke through, spoke to him. But, but in some of those situations, it was tough because these people didn't want um, anything to do with us. Um, we in, in speaking up for, um, it's biblical truth sometimes around sexuality. We've received opposition from people within the city. We've received opposition from people um, in different departments of, of different um, 
uh, agencies within our city who are upset because we take a biblical worldview of things and and who are frustrated and who try to cancel us out. And we haven't been canceled out yet, but I'm not counting that that day won't ever occur because it could occur that the world, its favor just turns against us, but that doesn't mean God's favor has turned against us. So yeah. there's lots of times when we have faced challenges and opposition. We work so hard for success in the worldly sense. Right. And I'm, I'm not saying the church here, but in general, folks work for the worldly success of money, power, prestige, fame, whatever you want to call it. But I, I love, there's a Josh Garrels song. He's a singer songwriter and he talks about the upside down kingdom. Right. And it, it's so countercultural to seek someone else's glory. Now, of course, as believers, we follow and seek after God's glory, but in the process, we can also seek for the good of other people and they're being lifted up from something. And so I was thinking about it tonight when you were talking about the hierarchy of politicians and how there was a certain pecking order that had to be followed. Um, and I just thought, wow, what does it look like for us to say, no, you first, right. you know, the parable where Jesus says, no, sit at the end of the table and wait to be invited up because in that situation, you'll receive greater honor and you won't have right. the embarrassment of being sent to the end of the table. And I hear that in some of what you were speaking about tonight, because it's a humility and a service that is opposite to what the political spectrum looks like nowadays. It's, right. it's attack ads and it's all of these things. When you have politicians who are so deeply ingrained and connected, and maybe it's not an individual politician, but a, a party because they were the party who gave you funding. Do you feel that pressure? Because I know that in my life I've had some connection with politicians and there is a, a pressure almost to deliver and perform and as a servant of the kingdom of God, you are not responsible for their political party's success. Right. I'm curious if that's something you've experienced or if you've been able to kind of stay out of the fray because of your pastoral role. We've really, the Lord's been gracious and we haven't been engaged in the fray at all. I mean, occasionally we get a political party that calls us and even they'd never asked to hang anything at the church, but they'd say, can we put something on your front lawn? right? When it's an election time. And I just say, no, people know where I live and I'm just not willing to engage um, in that. I've just kind of stayed nonpartisan that way. Uh, and it's been a real, it's been a real blessing that way. I'd say in, in each engagement politically, we've just come alongside of those who are in power in that season and offered to pray for them and to serve them and to walk regardless alongside of party, them, regardless of party, mm. regardless of where they're coming from. And they know that, um, that doesn't mean like we've had season where seasons and sometimes long seasons uh, where people have really uh, they've reciprocated to that. Well, they walk alongside of us. We have seasons where people kind of just say, no, no, that's not what we're into. Um, and we don't really want what you're offering. Right. Because they know at the end, everyone kind of knows with us that the end game for us is Jesus, right? right? We want to point them to Christ. And, and we have those conversations with people as God opens those doors. Um, My last question I think would be <clears throat> that, you know, you, you are a person of some renown and I don't say that to pump you up or to bring you down. You are a pastor who's well known in your community. Um, you serve humbly and I, I admire that about you. But even in that role, you've got a bigger role, right? You've served on these boards. You talk about that and, and you've used it for God's glory. In no way am I <laughs> upset about that. How would you encourage a lay person who feels like that's too much for me? Uh, that all sounds great. And I'm glad that Dwayne is doing that. But I'm just a mom. I'm just a dad. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a. How would you encourage a person like that to stay actively involved in kingdom work while being aware of this political stuff that bounces around too? I'd say Ebed Milek, 
the passage I read earlier from the book of Jeremiah could have said that mm. I, I'm just a slave of the king. But in being a slave of the king, he knew he could have audience with the king. Mm. And so he went to the king, although he knew the king could take his life to save Jeremiah. And I think for each person listening, if God is, is positioning your heart in a place where there's an injustice around you that's occurring and you feel God's spirit prodding you to act out on that, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider how you acted on that because you're not just a mom or a dad or an accountant or a teacher or a mechanic. You are a child of the King and he is with you and his spirit will not abandon you or walk away from you. And whatever it is he's calling you to in that season, he will see you through because he is the Lord God almighty. And so throw yourself upon him, listen to what he's asking you to do. Be willing to walk faithfully into that next thing that he's asking you to do. And it could be something at work. It could be something in your community. It could be something in your neighborhood. But as the Lord opens those doors, faithfully walk through them and you'll find that he is faithful to see you through whatever he's calling you to. Amen. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for your time tonight. I know that our listeners are going to be encouraged by hearing this just as the audience at NBC was. So we are praying for you. We are thankful for your ministry and looking forward to seeing you back here soon. Thank you, Luke. Great to be here. God bless NBC. All right. That's our first podcast episode. A big thank you to Dwayne from James North for being a part of this episode. Thank you for bringing such wisdom, grace, and passion to our discussion today. Next week, we're hearing from Dr. Michael Polwecki, the president at Briarcrest College. He's going to be sharing with us about wokeness and how to engage with language and thoughts that can seem so great on one hand, but perhaps not so biblical when we take a closer look. If you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode, we would love it if you would share it with a friend, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or give us a like on social media. If you have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio and technical support from Charles West and the summer 2022 AV team. The theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tabakel Holtz. We'll see you next Monday for our next episode of Transforming Culture. Children home.